0: Good morning, and thanks, Braden, for that good reading, Acts 17, if you want to keep your text open there. Uh, You may remember last week, I just showed a few pictures from our trip and promised to give you some more, and that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at some of those pictures, but I I don't want this to simply be some kind of a, a travel report. I want to show you some pictures of where we've been And let you think about what took place there 2,000 years ago and that the gospel that was preached there is still being preached today. And what we saw in those pictures a few minutes ago that took place right here in town, a baptism of a gentleman heard the gospel. It's the same thing happening now that was happening then. And we need to keep it going. So let's let's talk about some of these things and see if we can make some application. talk about our big fat Greek trip. I thought that might be a good title for this. At least this is part one, Athens, Greece. We got to go to Athens. We also got to go to Corinth. We also went to Ephesus, which is not in Greece. It's in modern day Turkey, which was then referred to as Asia Minor. And Lord willing, we'll come back and do some lessons on those as time permits later on. But let's talk first off about Athens. Uh, My thanks to Charles Andrews who showed me how to put an arrow on a map. And there you can see where the city of Athens is located. As you are looking at that map to the left would be Italy across the sea there. And to the right would be the Asian continent where Turkey is presently located. And Ephesus is also over there. So they just give you some idea of the geography. Now here is a picture. you recognize anybody in that shot? There are the Tebos, Tim Tebow and his lovely wife. And they were visiting, I believe it was this summer, in Athens, Greece. And the gentleman that you see with them is Dino Russos. He is a minister for the only congregation I know of in that area. and They're in Athens. And he is also a tour guide. Of course, he's very well versed in the uh, happenings in Athens from the book of Acts. And he takes people on tours and guides them as we speak. He is in Dallas, at least that was his plan, to be there visiting family over the holidays. But I just wanted to have you see some familiar faces from uh, around here and introduce you to Dino so you can be praying for his work. The congregation there in Athens we got to worship with the first Sunday we were in uh, in the continent Sunday evening, small congregation but strong. And it's not just Greek people. There are, I may have mentioned to you a couple of weeks or last week that the first fellow we met was from Iran. He's a member of the Lord's Church from Iran, heard the gospel. He's got family in the church as I recall. There is a, a number of people who are Russian speaking who are members of the church. It's, it's like here you'll have a congregation that's English speaking but you might have Hispanic congregation also meeting in that building. It's, it's a similar situation there. The numbers are not large. But the spirit is fervent. And it's, it's heartening to see that there is uh, an aspect of the kingdom. The Lord's people there in Athens even if it's not large. This is Athena. At least it's an artist representation of the goddess Athena. She's the one who got her name from the city of Athens. She is the daughter of Zeus. She emerged full grown from his forehead. That's how they did it back in the day. At least that's the story. Or there is another story of how Athena came to be. Zeus swallowed Metis. She is the goddess of counsel, wisdom. And he swallowed her while she was pregnant with Athena. So Athena was born from Zeus later on. Now you might wonder why am I telling you these things? This this is the kind of mythology that comes from the Greco Roman gods. I say Greco Roman gods because they started out Greek gods and then the Romans adopted them, and the mythology was similar, but it it fluctuated greatly, and as you do your own research, you'll find out that not everybody thinks the same things happened with these gods, and the stories are just about as capricious as the gods were supposedly themselves. This is Aphrodite. I like her because she's the goddess of the hunt. But she was born from the sea foam off Cyprus. And one of our guides showed us when we were at Cyprus where that took place, where she was born. Uh, Cronus was upset with his father. And so he, he mutilated his father and cut off part of him and threw it in the sea. And from that throwing of part of Uranus in the sea... Aphrodite was born. Familiar dysfunction was rampant among the Greco-Roman gods. You see, they didn't even really exist. They were just made up in the minds of the people who thought about them. But even they could not escape this kind of dysfunction. You do some research. You do your study on what is said and what is taught about the gods. Those people were a mess. So it's no wonder there was a lot of mess in the first century world. Let's just talk about these gods because the Greeks had them first and then the Romans adopted them. But there was Zeus. He's the primary god of the Greeks. And then for the Romans it was Jupiter. For the Greeks, Poseidon was the god of, where did Poseidon rule? Oh yeah, he was the god of the sea. And then for the Romans it was Neptune. And the Cronus, of course, we just talked about him and his upset with his father uh, Uranus. And then there is Saturn. And there's Aphrodite. We mentioned her, introduced her briefly. and But she was the counterpart to Venus. Or Venus was the counterpart to Aphrodite. Ares was a god of war. And of course the Romans had Mars the god of war. Hermes was the messenger of the gods. You may remember uh, back in chapter 14 I think of Acts uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas were working and did a miracle and it was attributed that Paul was Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and Barnabas was another one of the gods. That the people were st- steeped in this kind of idolatry, and it's, it's no wonder. It was everywhere, and it was very prominently portrayed in artwork, in statuary, in temples, everywhere you went, everywhere you looked, in the culture, in their economy. Hephaestus and Vulcan, the same same guy, Greek name, Greek idea, Roman identity. But he was the God of the forge. Uh, So, And and this is just a brief list of some of the gods. There's a whole bunch more of them. You probably know some that aren't on the list. You're thinking, where's Apollo? Uh, Well, that's a spaceship we sent up back years ago. (laughs) Where are the other gods that aren't on the list? I'm just giving you this so you'll know. It started with the Greeks and the Romans adopted it. And whoever... Whatever it came of, it was just crazy. It was insanity. There's the Parthenon, that building you see on top of that hill. That's the Parthenon. It's on top of the Acropolis. The word Acropolis simply means the top of the city, high part of the city. And this is in Athens. And this is what you see. This is the most prominent feature in the city of Athens. And this is what uh, has been there for about 2,500 years. And it is a ruin But it's not a ruin because it was simply left alone. A lot of history has taken place in Athens. Back in the 1600s, there was a war. The Ottoman Turks took over uh, the Greeks. And when they were attacked by their enemies, they used the Parthenon as a uh, gunpowder storage facility. It took a hit. The gunpowder exploded and a great deal of damage was done. And so there's a lot of restoration work taking place. when you... You can't really see it here in this picture, but there's a lot of scaffolding up there because they're trying to refurbish refurbish, and restore some of those buildings so that you can see what they might have been like back in their heyday. And this is about as close as we can come to Paul's view of the Acropolis. This is from Mars Hill, standing on Mars Hill, where he met with those who wanted to hear more about the resurrection. Can't have too many of those folks that want to hear more about the resurrection. He took the gospel into Athens and his spirit was stirred within him when he saw all of the idolatry and he began to talk about the gospel and people wanted to hear more about it. This is an artist's concept of how the Acropolis might have looked in its heyday. One of the things you, I don't know if you can tell it by that picture or not, but there's color involved. We look at the ruins and we simply see the white marble of the stone that was used. But after they built these buildings with marble and stone, whatever materials they used, they would paint them brightly. And it was a sight to behold. And you may notice a large statue towering over one of those temples. This is how they did it back in the day. And I don't, I, I sort of play around with the idea that if, if your God's not real, you need to do everything you can to try to make them real. And size is one of those things. And so you create a huge statue and this featured very prominently in the view of people who came to the city of Athens. They'd look upon this hill and they would see these, these mighty wondrous temples and the huge statues of gods that did not even exist. And they would be impressed. And you can imagine Paul. Coming into town with the message of the resurrection. And who is Paul? He has no great entourage. He's he's not a powerful orator as he would say himself. And yet the message that he has is the most powerful truth in all the world. And yet there were very few who followed what he had to say. In front of the, the Acropolis is that, that flat part there. That's how they believe the Areopagus, Mars Hill, used to look. It was a meeting place. If you go there now, if you recall from the picture I showed there, that granite rocky outcrop, that's all Mars Hill is. We had the whole family up there, and there were a lot of other tourists up there, and it was very difficult to navigate this place because everything is jutting up with sharp edges everywhere. You can't find a comfortable place to sit. Uh, you can find a place to stand, but but that's about it. They've got a couple of walkways made, and you better stick close to those uh, unless you're five or six years old and you're pretty nimble. And there have been so many people up there, of course, now these days, that the rocks have been worn down slick where they're not sharp, and you can fall and hurt yourself pretty easily. I don't know how people didn't do it while we were up there, but... But that's what it looks like now. But this is perhaps in the lower foreground of that picture what it would have looked like back then. Because the Areopagus wasn't simply a hill. It was a hill that was a meeting place. And you may recall from Acts 17 if you want to go back to that text that uh, Braden read for us a little bit ago. One of the things that's mentioned in the very last verse is... It says, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend... Oop, sorry. Where am I here? Uh, verse 34, Acts 17, 34. Some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. The Areopagite. In other words, he was somebody who had a connection with the Areopagus. And it is believed that was a meeting place for legal matters to take place and for just uh, judicial decisions to be made. And so the Areopagus was not simply a place where people went to. It was a place of significance where things happened in Greek Athenian culture. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. And he knew that these things were not the truth. And the gospel was, and he was bringing that gospel. Here, this is at the base of Mars Hill, the Areopagus. You see that bronze plaque there that apparently the government has put up. It is a portion of Acts chapter 17 of Paul's sermon. You can read it of course if you can read Greek because that's the language it's written in. Here is a picture of the Agora or the marketplace. And this is where Paul would go to talk with whoever was there About the resurrection of Jesus Christ, about the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. This is the marketplace. He was here. We got to go there. We got to walk in this area where Paul had to have been and talked with people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And we got to be there. This is a gate of the Agora. Again, the Agora is the marketplace. This is like the front door of their Walmart. You can see where the greeters would have stood right down there. Welcome you into the, to the marketplace, to the Agora. Columns were tapered to give the presence or the illusion of size. And I'm thinking as, as if we needed the illusion of size. Everything is huge over there. Everything was great, giant. It was impressive. It was an impressive city with impressive structure. Here's a, uh, the base of one of those columns. And these are all over the place. They're just scattered about uh, almost like toys. And you see those four holes in the base. That's because when they originally built they had earthquakes and things would fall down. And so they figured out how to make holes in the bases and then connect the columns to the bases with leaden. Connectors that would flex in an earthquake. Very ingenious. Greek engineering reached the height of both aesthetics and technology. They built beautiful things, but they also built functional things. And they knew how to make things earthquake proof. And so they did that. And that's why much of that stuff is still standing. Here's another view of the Agora from a different angle. But if you notice down at the end of there, I don't know if you can see it, but there is a tower at the end. The Horologian or hor- Horologian, I'm not sure how it really ought to be pronounced. But that's the Horologian of Andronicus in the background. This is a technological wonder with a timepiece in it. I had no idea that this existed, but it's still there. You can go there and see it. We, we did. And this timepiece was operated from water that came down from the Acropolis The Greeks were an ingenious people. They had an eye for aesthetics, but they also had an eye for engineering and science. Here's a better view of it. It was octagonal, and it was at the end of the marketplace, housing an intricate hydraulic timepiece. And then the images, if you can see some of those images carved at the top, they are the gods of the winds. You can imagine, everywhere Paul would go, he would see, in one way or another, carved images of idols and know that this is what the people worshipped. This is what the people feared. This is what they thought was significant in their spiritual lives. just want to notice a few things that are attributed to the Greeks. The recording of history. Herodotus was a historian and it's uh, thought that he was probably one to be called the father of recorded history who would finally write down the things that have taken place in the past. Medicinal ethics came to us in a great way from the Greeks uh, the hippocratic oath came from hippocrates who was greek democracy probably all of us have heard in one way or another that the system of democracy democratic government came from the Greeks and it did trial by a jury it's interesting uh, back in their day a jury might consist of over 500 people uh, be a crowded courtroom but The idea is the same, and we use that yet today. The basis of geometry, if you've ever studied geometry, you're studying mathematical practice that was uh, ventured into by the Greeks, first of all. Modern philosophy, for whatever modern philosophy is worth, it started with the Greeks. There are other things that started uh, with the Greeks and were very prominent in the first century. By the way, what language is our New Testament written in originally? Koine Greek. Yes, that's how prominent the Greeks were. Their culture, their language spread throughout the world, and they were a very um, influential people, influential culture. So here's a question How could folks be so wise regarding the works of the world and be so wrong about spiritual things? We walk through the ruins, and you see the ruins, and you think, wow, these, these things were at one time fantastic, they were great. People worked hard to create these buildings and these carvings, and yet what have they come to today? There is much more to this world than the physical. There is much more that we should be impressed by than what this world would show us. When John wrote 1 John chapter 2, he talked about the things of this world, the lust of the eyes... The lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. And how these things are of the world and that the world is passing away. And when you go to these places you can see that literally taking place. The great things of the world, the great things of the past, great history, great cultures passing away. The only thing that lasts is that which is of God. Observations. The genius of man is nearly limitless. What the ancient Greeks did and other cultures as well. But right now we're talking about the Greeks. It's amazing. What they did. What they built. What ideas they came up with. Their genius. Of course God created us all in his image. And he gave us good minds. And those minds are to be used to do good things. But another thing that's. Almost limitless is our willingness to embrace foolishness in order to escape responsibility. Can you relate to that? Do you do any of that yourself? We look at these things. We, Oh, yeah, well, that was 2,000 years ago. Those people were crazy. They worked, worshipped idol God. How could you even think about some woman coming up out of the ocean because part of her daddy was thrown in there? How could you think about somebody coming forth from somebody's forehead? Well, any crazy ideas in the world today that people embrace and believe? Anything that's just nuts? Nothing has changed really. Everything's pretty much the same. And the whole point of all of these ideas is so that we don't have to believe in a God to whom we would be responsible. And yet, and yet, what is better for you and me than to, as we studied in class this morning, To submit to the mind and the rule and the love and the grace and mercy of God. What is better for us than that? There isn't anything better. There isn't anything equal. There isn't anything close. There really is only God and everything else is waste. Everything else is, as Solomon put it, vanity. 31 plus... Anybody remember me talking about this number before? What's the significance of that number? 31 plus. That's about how many congregations of the Lord's Church we can account for in the New Testament. In other words, we can, we can find places where congregations are named, but other times there's congregations that are referenced without being given a name. And for example, the... The letter to the Galatians was sent to the churches of Galatia without naming all of those congregations. So we don't know how many congregations there were, but we can account for at least 31 and we know there had to be a few more than 31. 31 that doesn't sound like much, does it? Now, what all those congregations have in common today? And I know the normal answers we would think of, well, they all started with the gospel. Yes, they did start with the gospel. They all revered Jesus. Yes, they all revered Jesus. They all had hope in eternity and in heaven. Yes, all of those things would be true. But what do they have in common today? And what I'm thinking, what I want to bring to your attention is. None of those congregations exist anymore. They started, some of them started strong. Who sent Paul on his missionary journeys? That was the church that was in Antioch in what country? Syria. The nation of Syria had a congregation in their city of Antioch so strong and so wealthy and so generous that they sent Paul on three missionary journeys. They supported him for that work. How much do you know about the Lord's church in Syria today? Things change. I don't know all the reason why each of those congregations ceased to exist, but we know that they did. Now the church has been reestablished in some of those places, but those original congregations... At some point in history, Cease to exist. Doesn't that give you pause? What do we enjoy here? The richness of God's blessings in so many different ways. The fellowship of the saints. Just take a look around in here at who you're getting to be with today and the wealth of what we have. That surpasses so much of, of what the world has as it lives in a spiritual poverty. And here we sit. I hope that in talking about these times and these places and these events. That you and I will be inspired to do what Paul did. To go into our present day marketplaces and to talk to people About their soul. Talk to them about the gospel. Talk to them about the resurrection. Talk to them about Jesus. Talk to them about things that make a difference. Because a lot of folks are talking about a lot of things that just really don't matter in life. But at some point, we need to get down to talking to people about what does matter. And it's the same thing Paul talked about it's Jesus Christ, it's his deity, it's his death, his sacrifice for us, his resurrection. These are things that make a difference. And so with these few thoughts this morning, I will leave you and I will ask of you, if you are one of those who is outside the kingdom of God this morning, what will history say of you? What will be written down? About how you responded to the spiritual things of God. Don't be taken in with what the world has to offer. The culture and the religion of ancient Athens was influential and powerful and strong. But it was actually nothing. And that's most of what's in the world today. Only God has substance. Only his kingdom will last And I want so much for you to be a part of that if you are not this morning. If you are a part, rejoice. Rejoice and pray and prepare yourself to talk to those who are outside and in need of the gospel. The world's a dark place, is it not? And we are coming into a season. We are in it now really. When people may be more willing to talk about spiritual things. Don't hesitate to take the opportunity. Even if you think you're not very good at it, do it anyway. You may be their only hope. They may be just waiting for somebody to say something to them to break into a conversation about spiritual things and talk about their soul. This is the season. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, be instant when? In season and be instant." Out of season. I remember an old preacher. His name was Marshall Keeble. And he said, what that means is when they likes it and when they don't. (laughs) You keep talking about Jesus. Paul told that to Timothy. I think in telling it to him, he told it to us. Keep talking about Jesus. Find and make every possible opportunity. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. If we can help you this morning to come to Christ. To become part of his kingdom. If you need the prayers of this congregation, we are a praying people and we want to do what we can for you to bless you this morning. So let's stand and sing the song of encouragement and invitation.